Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Hey friends, today I'm going to talk about something that I think separates really great trainers from maybe mediocre ones. And I think that list is a long list, but this concept in particular kind of keeps showing up um, in my life. It shows up in my students and it definitely shows up in myself sometimes. And it is the ability to pivot. And I'm not talking about pivoting for, you know, heel work. I'm talking about the kind of metaphorical ability to pivot off of your plans because your plan is not working out because your plan is not unfolding the way that you expected. It is really tough for novice trainers or trainers who are maybe learning a new thing to not continue to pound at the skill in front of them when things are not going well. And I think that has to do with fluency. I think if you're really fluent in whatever it is that you're training, you see when things are not going well and you know when things are not going to look up and you need to pivot. And the other issue is that dogs are really wonderful. And so a lot of times something might not be going very well, but you keep trying anyway and maybe you get a couple of good reps and you feel good about those good reps. In reality, the trainer who's maybe more experienced than you um, or more, more fluent than you in whatever it is, is going, yeah, you got those two reps, but you also got eight really bad ones. <laughs> That's not a good success rate. So let's talk about a couple of examples and then maybe talk about um, ways that you can help yourself to do this because it's it can be tough to do um, in real time, especially if you're not sure that it's actually happening because you are used to training being a little bit hard or training being uh, feeling a little bit clumsy to you. An example might be that you intend to work healing. Um, I love training healing. I train it for competitive obedience. And if my dog right out, right off the bat is vocalizing and maybe going vertical or pushing into me during healing, those are not behaviors I want to practice. And a trainer who maybe doesn't recognize how detrimental those reps of those poor behaviors can be might just kind of continue to try to kind of push through the issue. And what I'm going to do instead is go, oh, this is not happening. So I'm either going to entirely pivot, work on something else, I'm going to do something to bring my dog's head back into the game. So if I'm being my best self, I'm probably going to do a little pattern feeding. Um, and then I'm probably going to cue some positions for food. And then I might even do like a marker discrimination task. Like, can you choose to eat this food instead of bite the toy and vice versa? And then if my dog 
is great at all of those things, then I'll go back to healing. Nine times out of 10, my dog's not gonna be perfect at those things because my dog wasn't ready to be doing hard things and maybe I need to do something different in this environment here today. Another example might be that you plan to work on front crosses and agility. Maybe you've got a front cross exercise from your trainer that you wanna work on and you've got 20 minutes of daylight left and you wanna get this done, but the dog just keeps knocking the bar um, or keeps knocking several bars. You can keep going, you can get mad, you can put the bars on the ground and keep pushing, or you can go, there might be something physically going on here that I need to check out. Um, and alternatively, you know, if that's kind of a consistent issue for your dog, you might go, okay, what's my jump exercise that helps the dog keep the bars up? What jump training can I pivot to? Because the dog just showed me that that's actually what he requires right now is jump training. Same thing with your start line stay. This happens to me sometimes. Um, Felix has, I would say his start line stay behavior is fragile. It looks really solid to most people watching him, but um, it will break down if what I'm asking him to do after the stay is particularly difficult. So in any given training session, it may break a little bit. If I start out in his stay, is not looking good, I really need to pivot and work on stays. I really need to not ask him to stay in that session. So I'm either gonna pivot and work on stays or I'm gonna pivot to an exercise where I don't need the stay at all rather than continue to break my stay. Similarly, maybe your dog is a little bit distracted. Maybe your dog, maybe you show up to train somewhere but your dog can't stop looking around or can't stop sniffing. You might be the kind of trainer that's gonna feel good about quote unquote working through that distraction. And I'm gonna encourage you to try not to think like that. I'm gonna encourage you to find where your dog can be successful rather than floundering through a lot of failures to find you know little fragments of success. So if you nag at your dog to come back to you from whatever the distraction is and you do get you know, maybe a few good steps of healing or a few good reps of weave pulls, but your dog goes back to sniffing and staring around in between there, you have invited that distraction to kind of infiltrate your loop and infiltrate your training. And so whatever good reps you get are bringing along the baggage of that distraction with them. And that's not a good thing. The best trainers see that something is not going well and they prioritize their training. They prioritize their dog's learning um, above the other things that are going to be your competing priorities here. What are some of the competing priorities? Well, if I set up an agility lesson, I'm going to pay my instructor whether my dog is able to work or not. So money. If I set aside that time, I drove there, I, you know, maybe set up the equipment, whatever, then time is another competing priority. So time, money, maybe embarrassment, maybe social approval are all things that we might prioritize above our better training and our dog's better learning. And we want to avoid prioritizing anything above our dog's better learning. Or in the very least, recognize that that's what you're doing. So a lot of you guys know that I worked really, really hard 
on teaching Felix to take a bath cooperatively because he had what I would consider an unacceptable level of distress about being bathed in a kind of, um, you know, I'm not going to say forceful, but maybe choice-free sort of way. Like, most of my dogs will take a bath just fine, but they're not really enjoying it. And it's not really an activity they would choose. But he would, you know, flail and snap at the water, and it, it was a pretty big nightmare. So I took about six months and worked very, very hard on this, and I'm really proud of his bath behavior now. But it is still fragile. And recently I was traveling and he got himself just an exceptionally filthy level of gross um, on the beach. So there was sand, but there was also an excessive amount of sea foam, which sea foam is like toxic, weaves right into the coat. And just, I mean, you guys, the dog smelled like a dead fish and didn't look much better. And I was still staying in my Airbnb. And I was like, he can't come into the Airbnb tonight like this because I'm going to get charged for having a really filthy dog in this space. And, you know, I didn't I didn't want to have to pay to launder the, you know, everything in the house. I didn't want to have to clean the house before I left, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I wanted to be respectful of their space. And there's a local dog wash place in town. And I said, you know, I've worked really, really hard on this. So I'm just going to go try it and we'll see. And I'm going to say that I pushed him further than I should. I took a lot of, took a big fat withdrawal out of that bank account, that bath bank account for him. And he wound up um, jumping out of the tub, which isn't something that he would normally do, but he's allowed to do as kind of part of the process to opt out. I kind of got him half bathed. I got him like clean enough to go into the Airbnb. It was not clean. If this were, this was an example of me prioritizing some stuff over my training, right? So I prioritized the fact that I needed him to be clean because I didn't want him to sleep in the car because he is my baby and that breaks my heart. Um, and I prioritized that I had driven to this place and I paid the money. Honestly, it really wasn't that. It was that I needed him to be clean so that he didn't have to sleep in the car. But I was prioritizing, you know, taking care of the space that I was renting above my training as well. That's okay because I realized I was doing it. I knew what I was doing and I knew that I would have to repair this. And so now every day since we've been home, I've asked him to hop in the standing tub that he's trained to get into cooperatively and just done some very, very easy repetitions of some of the bath behaviors. So I move the hose around, but it's not on. And I kind of massage his fur, but there's no water involved and I'm feeding him. And then I allow him to jump out when he's ready. And I'm going to put that, continue to put that money in the bank every day so that when he needs a bath next, he lets me take the bath next. Or I give him the bath next. I take a bath whenever I want. Converse that, you guys, with prioritizing your agility entry fee or the fact that you drove to an agility trial above the behavior above the behaviors that you have trained. So early in Felix's agility career, which has, thanks to COVID, been pretty much non-existent. But very early on, he did get to go to a regional event and he was entered in a regional steeplechase round one, which by the way, regional tournaments, if you don't do USDAA, costs a lot more money than any of the other classes. So it was about a $35 run. 
His weave pull performance over the last couple of runs that day was not great. He was missing the entry or he was popping out early. And I went, there are two sets of weave pulls in this steeplechase run. And I know that he's going to do them probably wrong, probably both times. And I scratched him from the steeplechase run. I said, you know what? That 35 bucks is worth more to me. Uh, putting it towards kind of I I will pay $35 to protect my weave pole behavior rather than eat that $35 walk into the ring and have what a failed run and practice poorly weave poles people get rewarded for making that choice because sometimes the dog doesn't write right so um and then all your friends really support that they're like see and you know when I scratched people were like what do you mean you're scratching it's fine it's steeplechase you can try the weaves again and again you know like that's again that's that social approval so I did not place social approval or money above my training in that situation I scratched I'm really proud of that steeplechase run because I scratched it um these are important things to do. So prioritizing the behaviors that you have trained above all else. And when you don't do that, recognizing that you're going to need to do the repair rather than going, well, we worked through it. It's okay. Recognize that working through it isn't okay. That's taking withdrawals out of the bank account. When I asked Felix to take that bath in that strange place with not his correct setup and not his correct water pressure. You guys, he's such a flower. Um, that was a big fat withdrawal from the bank. And I knew, so I could easily frame it this way. I could easily say, but you know what? We worked through it. I got him bathed. Go me. But that's not a smart way to think about it. The smart way to think about it is, wow, I now have got to build that account back up because I took that big fat withdrawal out. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm putting that money back in the bank. So here's how you learn how to pivot. Because while you're learning how to train better, while you're getting your training skills more fluent, you won't necessarily see these things. You won't necessarily be able to not think the way that you used to think. But here's what you can do. You can plan, okay? So you can plan your training. You can plan what you'd like to get out of this training. And then you can train in short bursts only. So you time yourself. And when the timer goes off, you station the dog or you crate the dog or you put them on leash or a downstay so that you have a second. And then you evaluate how did that chunk of time go? And I'm going to say the longest your timer should be for is two minutes. That kind of depends on what you're training. But if it's if you can get a reasonable amount of repetitions in within two minutes, it should be two minutes. I would say five minutes for for things that have very, very long loops, right? So maybe um, a running, running dog walk might have five minutes, but two sets of two by twos, two minutes tops, okay? Um, and most shaping projects, like picking up a dumbbell or something like that, 30 seconds. When my, when my students, by the way, are really not great at this, I make them train for 30 seconds at first so that they understand how to reevaluate after 30 seconds. Because if you gotta, right, you gotta walk before you can run, just like everything else. So one way that you can get better at this is by timing yourself and then 
actually spending that time after the timer goes off to evaluate how did that go? And maybe you took video, that would be a really good idea. And you can review the video, just it's only 30 seconds long, so just pop open your phone, go, how did this go? Maybe count successes and failures. Recognize, is this going the way I want it to go or not? And then also recognize that, quote unquote, working through it is not how it's supposed to feel. And until you feel a train, like it's gonna feel too easy until you understand that's how it's supposed to feel. It's supposed to feel easy. So the first thing you can do is time yourself. The other thing you can do, which I already mentioned, is video yourself. If you video yourself, you will learn to find the place in your training session where things started to go south and you'll start to identify when you should have quit. I have one student whose dog can pretty much only give him 90 seconds of work. And we figured that out through videoing and through having him have a timer for two minutes. The dog always went south around 90 seconds, always. The behavior always degraded. So we said, okay, great. 90 seconds is the maximum you get to train for. And hey, how about 60 seconds as your more optimal time frame? So you'll start to, in your video evaluation, recognize where things are going wrong and then you can stop before those things go wrong. And then the other thing that you can do is to just shake this mindset that things should feel hard. If it doesn't feel really easy, if it doesn't feel like the dog is going behavior reinforcement and back to behavior cleanly, without getting distracted, without sniffing, without looking around, without having to be told to come back after taking the reinforcer, you know, that's how it's supposed to feel. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be dog does the thing, dog gets paid, dog immediately returns and is ready to do the thing again. That's how it's supposed to feel. And I don't care what breed you have. That's how it's supposed to feel. Um, Until you know what that feels like, you may not recognize it. So the last thing you can do is get yourself a teacher who understands this. Get yourself a teacher who is not pushing you to push through mistakes and distractions and hard things, but is instead setting you and your learner up for success all the time and recognizing that pivoting away from the thing you meant to do is going to feel like failure to you at first, but it's the opposite. The failure is pushing through and continuing to dig your own grave by doing all of these repetitions of not great behavior. So I hope that this was helpful. Let me know if it was and get out there and, you know, write the word pivot on your hand if you have to. All right, I've got a few Patreon questions for you. This one comes from Alicia, who writes, Hello, I got a new working line Belgian Treviren puppy before the holidays. And I have questions about how to know if your socialization with both people and dogs, but mostly dogs, is just the right amount. I want my dog to be a safe off-leash hiking companion and a good sports dog. I want him to be comfortable around other dogs and people to, at the very least, understand the basics of dog body language and communication and be able to choose to interact appropriately. I'm socializing him to other dogs through free play and through working around them, trying to balance the opportunities for play and interactions with times where he won't get to interact directly, but will get to play with me around other dogs. My question is, how do I know that I'm getting this balance right? What signs should I look for to know that I may be overdoing free play or need to choose different dogs or different places to interact, like a backyard versus on a hike? 
Do you do any sort of test during free play to check your dog's arousal? What are red flags I can look out for during this socialization process? Ideally, I would be delighted with an adult dog that could politely greet other dogs off leash hiking and choose to continue walking with me after five to 10 seconds and a dog that was comfortable and happy working with me around other dogs at obedience and disc competitions. At the very least, I would like a dog that doesn't aggress towards strange dogs or react to other dogs working. I know that the answer probably depends on each puppy, but I was wondering if there are universal best practices or signs to look out for. So Alicia, great question. And I love that you really outlined what you're already doing and what your goals are so that I can best help you. The first thing I want you to do is go and talk to people who own relatives of this dog who have achieved your goal around other dogs. The best way for you to build a plan is to know what has worked before with your particular dog's genetic package. If there isn't anyone who has a dog like this who's related to your dog, that's a bad sign for you and it doesn't mean it's not gonna be possible, but it does mean it's gonna be a lot more work. And it may mean mean that you need to shift your expectations a little bit. Um, This is a breed that doesn't always take kindly to strange dogs. And so I like that your goal is, you know, not necessarily that you have a party animal or a dog park dog, but that the dog can deal with other dogs, right? So as far as your question about free play and whether or not um, it's working, it's all about observing the behavior of your puppy and cultivating that behavior with appropriate interactions. So what does that mean? It means that if my puppy likes to jump on other dogs and bite them and body slam them and be overall too rough, my puppy does not get to be around dogs that are smaller than him. And he shouldn't get to be around dogs that are younger than him either. So he should be around adult dogs who are gonna ignore his Tarzan antics um, only. And he should be around other young dogs that are doing other things so like working with their handler or if you're all on a hike together and then the wilderness is more interesting than the other dogs that's actually my preference so I don't like to have them play with each other where their play is the main focus I actually try not to set that up what I like to do instead is go to a novel place where the puppies have not been that is outdoors that is interesting if it has to be indoors set up a crazy cool fun obstacle course for them with food everywhere so that they're all scenting and snuffling um, rather than just bombarding each other body slamming each other how to know if what you're doing is working is by observing whether or not it's working and that is a day-to-day process so maybe today what you're doing looks great but then tomorrow your puppy gets a little over the top with um, the puppy that he outgrew as of last week in his class or something like that because you actually are looking for a dog that doesn't think other dogs are a huge deal I would be strongly emphasizing the work with me around other dogs part and then have him just experience I would think about quality over quantity of the experiences of um, interactions with other dogs so that his body language acceptance is really really good really normal so he has refined social skills you want him around other dogs that also have refined social skills it's kind of like you know if you want your kid to 
learn how to act, do you want them to be around adults who you think are good role models or do you want them to be around adults that you think are bad role models? Um, you want good role models for your puppy. And you always want to be testing uh, or not testing. You always want to be observing whether or not the puppy's behavior looks the way that you eventually want it to look. Because if it doesn't, you want to change something. So I hope that helps, Alicia. Next one is coming from Ashley who asks, is there a reason you use food over toys for reinforcing recalls? I have a dog for whom tug is life. Would there be any disadvantage in using that to reinforce recalls? I of course don't want to be positive yet coercive, but recall in particular needs to be as fail-proof as humanly possible. So the reason that I don't is because um, my dogs will then stop decompressing because they'll be obsessed about where the tug is. However, you could have a tug as your kind of surprise payout for those really, really tough recalls. So I talk in my recall program about having a really special food treat, like a piece of salmon or a piece of cheese um, that's in my vest that the dog doesn't know is there. And I use kibble for all the check-ins and most of the behaviors that happen on the walk. And then if I need to use that all important recall cue, I whip out that really, really delicious food you could use your tug in that way. That isn't a good idea if the dog is gonna be aware that the tug is there and unable to decompress. Okay, last one comes from Aaron. Aaron asks, I'd love to hear your thoughts on variable versus continuous reinforcement. I know, I think that variable reinforcement makes a behavior resistant to extinction, but does it strengthen a behavior? For example, if I'm trying to build reliability in off-leash check-ins, am I better off rewarding every time and just varying the value of my rewards, cheese one time, kibble another, or is it better to reward variably? Thanks. Aaron, it's a great question. And the answer is that yes, variable reinforcement, and to clarify, that means that you don't reinforce the behavior every time does make the behavior resistant to extinction, but it also increases the variability of that behavior. Um, and that's not something that I want most of the time. So especially with something like recalls that I want to be very strong, your best bet is not a variable schedule, but a variable type of reinforcer, which is what you mentioned by having cheese one time or kibble another time. Do reinforce every single time, but vary the way that you reinforce it. And I personally reinforce those really, really tough recalls with really, really good food. Thanks. All right, everyone. Great questions. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, as well as joining the CogDog Radio community, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio and become a patron for as little as $4 a month. I hope to see you there. Cheers. Cheers.